0: Welcome to New Realities, which is Alan Steinfeld, and this program is about the evolution of our consciousness, how we are moving into a new time, and accessing different facilities of the mind, and how the paradigm is changing, how we thought certain things were working and now they're not, and how we need a whole shift in the way we approach each other, um, institutions, And tonight's show especially psychology. That's why I have one of my favorite people on the show, uh, someone who's been a big influence on me and the direction of my studies and research, and um, someone who's still um, doing his own work in the field. I have on on the line tonight my Uncle George Steinfeld, Dr. George Steinfeld. George, welcome.
1: Oh, hi, Alan. How are you? It's nice being with you again. Okay.
0: It's great to be with you. I mean, I got a lot of great feedback from the last show we did. That was
2: our interview.
0: Um, But really, what you want to talk about is this new book that you've written called... um, What's the title? It's
1: called... uh, It's called Bullshit in Psychotherapy.
0: So, okay. Now, let's, let's start with this thing. So...
2: You have
0: uh, been a practicing psychotherapist ever since I can remember. For about uh, about 50 years. That's, that's about as long as I remember. Uh, <coughs> you actually, I do really remember you giving me and my younger brother an IQ test. I think you were still in college. Yes,
1: yes, I, yes. When I was learning but how to do were... diagnostic testing.
0: That's right. So you were yes. trained in a pretty traditional. Actually, I remember you even had a little beard. You looked like you had a little Freudian thing going yes, on I, for a while.
1: Yes, I, uh, I would. I would try to emulate those people when I was insecure enough to know what the hell was going on. I thought if I looked the part, I'd be able to uh, convince people that I knew what I was talking about. But
0: but uh, but, but you but I mean I think tracing your as a psychotherapist, and of course um, I'm also doing these interviews in association with the um, the ASP Association for Spirituality and psychotherapy this, this kind of interview will be on the in, on the website so um, because i've been a member of ASP okay. um, if you could trace your uh, historical development and then what led to your dissatisfaction and uh, you know that kind of movement in your mind. Of, um... yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, uh, uh,
1: let me let me tell you. Let, let me tell you if I can. Uh, ever since I was in graduate school, um, I, I uh, started to sense that things weren't what they appeared to be. Now, uh, your, your father and I would talk about these things uh, even as adolescents um, okay. in the darkness what, what of kind, our... What kind
2: of,
0: thing, what kind of things do you mean?
1: Warren, we, we, would mean? Talk about, we would talk about um, uh, what people were really feeling and thinking and what we were thinking and feeling, our relationship with our parents. We were very close, as you know. Um, yes, and so yes. you know, I was always very interested in uh, in the field, but I didn't know what to do until your father told me when I asked him, when I was totally confused. I said, "Nady, uh, what should I do?" And your father said, "Become a psychologist." So I said, "Okay." <laughs>
0: Otherwise, you would have been a construction worker or something. <laughs> yeah,
1: I didn't know what the hell I was. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. You know, I worked with your your father for a couple of years. Then I went into the army. I came back. Um, I, and I tell the story in the book, actually, about um, how when I came back from the army, uh, my mother, and I had the GI Bill of Rights, uh, and so we were poor, as you know, and my wow. mother was only uh, interested in earning a living, uh and so I had the deal Bill of Rights, and Brooklyn College wouldn't have cost me anything, and I would give them uh, the money that I got from the GI Bill. But my mother said, yes, college, schmoller, you don't have to go to college. Just get a job and uh, do what your brothers did, okay? And so, you right. know, my mother got a job. Your father got a job. He went to school eight years at night. Right. And I wanted to go to school during the day. My mother said, you can't go to college and even at 22, I didn't have the guts to uh, to buck her, to buck her uh, servant mentality, as I call it. She couldn't believe. <laughs> well, leave. she was an
0: old, she was a Europe. I mean, I remember She was, a, you know, that heavy uh, Eastern European accent. She was an old yeah, woman. She, she never went to college herself. She probably never even graduated high school. No, she
1: never grad. No, she came to this country as a kid and, yeah. uh, you know, married to my father and took a few uh, you know, uh, went to school a little bit. And so she had no, uh, she had lost her mother when she was uh, four. Uh, and she was uh, shuffled around from family member to family member before she came to America, and that's a great story. And your father interviewed uh, our mother. That's a great right. videotape about uh, her life, et cetera. So, so right. I, get, I, get, I get home from the Army, and uh, discover that my room that I left is now taken over by my aunt. No one ever told me about this. I come home <laughs> and to the apartment in Flatbush, even though we were raised in Williamsburg. Um, mm-hmm. I, I come home. I said, "Well, well, where my well, what happened?" I said, "Well, your aunt Fanny came to live with us because uh, Mama uh, promised her father that." She would take care of the sister, my grandfather's sister. So when she mm-hmm. couldn't work anymore, she came to live with us. And so where was I gonna, where was I gonna be? I said, well, we ha- we set up a cot for you in the kitchen. So, uh, so I can <laughs> actually. That bedroom. Uh, uh, no bedroom. I, I, uh, I now sleep in the kitchen. Uh, but I still, I want to go to college. And my mother says no. So I call your father and I call Marsh, my our older brother, and they come in and they say, "Uh, "Ma, Georgie has to go to college." So that's how I went to college. If I didn't have
0: that was a nice thing they did for you.
1: They they saved my life essentially, uh, because I didn't have the guts to buck the program that I grew up with, and the program was that. Uh, education wasn't important unlike most Jewish families my mother and father didn't think education was important and uh, added to that was my, the perception in my family that I was an absolute moron so,
2: uh,
1: so, so not only not only couldn't, uh, didn't they value education but me especially uh, you know I, couldn't, I was so dumb I couldn't even ask a question that was my role in the family. <laughs> we know that your father was the smart one. Yeah, and, he, of course, he was the smart one.
2: Anyway, yeah, I go he, to college. He was
1: pretty What was that?
2: No, he was
0: I, a I, very smart person. I think he told you to go and be a psychotherapist because, of course, that's what he probably would have liked yes. to do.
1: Yes, he wanted, but he was working and, you know, got into the career in business, et cetera. But uh, And children. Was, I
0: feel responsible. I was the oldest. You know, I feel like, oh.
1: No, but he eventually, you know what your father did, he eventually became very interested in psychotherapy and spirituality, and we would spend hours talking about that. Uh, so
2: even well, though he wasn't... Well,
0: well uh, just to let you know, because my father did get into spirituality, gave me a sort of uh, open-door permission to pursue spirituality exactly. in the way that I've done, and and I have to thank my father, because without him, we probably wouldn't be doing this interview, we probably wouldn't be doing any of this, I'd probably be, that's right, and so, he was, yes, a free thinker, an intelligent person, someone who was willing to explore, and he also had that other side of him, where he felt really secure, he made money, so, those two sides... And me, I didn't care about making money because I already we already grew up in middle class. I had money. I wanted to do the exploration. So here we are today talking.
1: Well, of course, of course. So anyway, I so I finally go to Brooklyn College. I meet Jean because you know I meet her in school. Okay, and um, I take graduate courses at night because I know you can't do anything with a BA. In psychology, psych- I, I meet Jean. I graduate. We get married. You were the page boy at our wedding. I remember <laughs> being the
0: page boy at your wedding. You were yes, the page I'm boy.
1: Now. You were the you were the ring bearer, I think. But he, okay?
0: I, I think I was. I You've you you married had pictures. Over, I had pictures, but you've been married then over fifty years then, haven't you?
1: We've been married for fifty almost fifty five years almost.
0: Wow.
1: Fifty-five years. Uh, yeah,
0: so
1: you've I've always been my, married. My whole life
0: I've been married. What? You know, i just uh, like... <laughs> yeah, so that's it. You've been married. Okay, you've been married. And then, you, then what happened?
1: So uh, I, I, I get a job. Uh, this is very interesting. I get a job, but I take courses at night um, at Brooklyn College because it wasn't very expensive. I got my BA in psychology, but I knew that wouldn't uh, do me anything. So I kept taking courses at Nyada Brooklyn College, and um, uh, and one day, and I'm very depressed. Uh, I'm depressed because the job is so bad that I don't want to even go to work anymore. So what kind uh, of job?
2: What, 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 what I was interviewer.
1: I was an interviewer for the state. I, I couldn't get people jobs. There were no jobs. It was a terrible job, and so I was getting more and more depressed, and uh, just taking these courses. And I bump into a guy, you know him, Bernie, Bernie Star. You know Bernie Star.
2: He's part yes, of the. I just saw Bernie.
1: You you knew Bernie Starr back then. Well, he he was a turning point in my life.
0: Bernie was. I did not. Know. I just saw Bernie today. I, I yeah. Actually, what. He was one of the presidents of AFC, so you met three stars. That's right. I knew knew Bernie in
2: college.
1: I knew Bernie in college. And so I'm taking courses, and he graduates before me. So I'm going to night school, and I go to the library one day, and uh, I bump into Bernie. I say, hey, Bernie, what the hell are you doing? He says, "Well, I'm going to Yeshiva University." To which I say, "Where the hell is that? I never heard of it." He says, "Well, I, I started. They have a new program, and they're starting a newer program, taking the the, uh, prof- the, the uh, professors from the new school for social research, and Yeshiva is starting a new program, and they're different than other programs. Why don't you apply?" So, it's a very. If I turned left instead of right, I wouldn't have met Bernie, and my whole life would have been different.
0: Very interesting. That's that's incredible, and it's just so strange. I ran into Bernie today. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So, and we would go out with Bernie later on. But anyway, at that time, uh, so they say the program is a little different, and and so I decide to apply to a lot of schools. My grades were very bad. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, they give me an interview. Yeshiva University gives me an interview, and I'm interviewed by a guy named Irvin Rock, R O C K. He interviews me, looks at my record, and he says this to me: "You have a shitty record." <laughs> During the interview, he says, "You have a shitty record." So I said, "I'm a dead person. I'm never going to go to school. Uh, all the other schools had rejected me." Okay. And so uh, he said, however, I noticed that you took these graduate courses with very, with very good professors, uh, Morse and RAB. I know them. They're very tough professors. And you got A's. So I'm going to assume that that's your potential.
2: Ah.
0: That was so very I'm, nice. I, I, I I didn't know this. I had no idea it was such a a struggle. I just thought, boom, you were a psychotherapist, and you got him. Okay, I'm happy to hear the story. No, no,
1: he was, he was, he was, uh, so he accepts me on the basis of my potential. He had (laughs) confidence that I could do it when I didn't have confidence that I could do anything. Okay? So, um, he accepts me. We, uh, I start my graduate school, and I talk about this in the book, about my first taste of bullshit came in two varieties. One was a, was a story told by um, uh, the future president of uh, APA, who I took courses with at Brooklyn College, Max uh, what was Max's name? I forget Max. Uh, Max Siegel. He eventually okay. became president president of ABA, but he was teaching abnormal psychology, and he told this story. Uh, this story was he would send people for psychological evaluations, and invariably, they the evaluation would indicate that the patient was gay or homosexual. Mm-hmm. Until he discovered that the evaluator, was gay or homosexual. So he told me this story, which stayed in my brain all of these years, right? Which is really the essential basis for my Buddhist uh, philosophy and my cognitive philosophy and everything else, because as as I talk about it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Anyway, so that was my first Sense that things aren't the way they are supposed to be.
0: I mean, so that, then, that gave you a hint that we only see in the world exactly. what we are. Yes, yes, but I
1: didn't know anything about what you're saying then. I knew something was off, but I had no uh, structure. I had no philosophy. I had no theory that would account for that, other than your own feeling that something isn't right. Okay. But, and so but I went to good.
0: But 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 that's pretty good that something sparked in your brain that that kind of was a um significant moment to be noticed. I mean other yeah. people yeah, I get it. Okay.
1: So I noticed that and then I so we start taking our courses the first year and the first year uh, Doctor Rock taught learning and learning and perception and then a social psychologist, a very big, I won't mention his name, I don't mention his name, and um, the, 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 um, the, the kids in my program, there were 25 of us that were accepted, um, and they were very bright. I knew they were bright because as I was listening to the professor discuss theory and research, they would be arguing with the professor while I was still trying to figure out which which way the mouse went in the maze. I mean, I was so far behind these people in, their, in my ability to think. Uh, so I said, I'll never get through this program. Well, what really happened is only four of us went on internship, and I was one of the four because I worked my ass off. And not only did I work my ass off and pass my – and I go into this – But my second year, Dr. Rock gave me an internship, and uh, not an internship, a research assistantship. And so we started to do research, and when I started to really do research with Dr. Rock, even publishing some papers with him, okay, my mind started to expand. I started to not think I was dumb.
0: And, what, what, uh, what, was, what was that moment where you realized that you could comprehend this stuff?
1: What well, was one, of moment? the moments was, one of the moments was that Ir, uh, Irv Rock told the students that if we could solve one of the theoretical problems that he had, he developed a theory of one-trial learning. It was a big theory back then based on research with humans. <laughs> But the criticism of Rock's work was that he never did uh, work with animals because most of the researches in learning theory were based on animal research. But out of the cognitive school, they never did research with animals. So we got animals. We had a very funny stories about raising, trying to raise mice. We didn't know anything about that. But anyway, I'm, I'm thinking about trying to solve this theoretical uh, issue uh, to prove Rock's theory. And so uh, I'm sitting in Gene's parents' house, and I come up with this idea, and I'm so excited that I, I can't wait to get into school and tell Irv, Dr. Rock, about this new experiment that would prove one way or another the validity of his theory. So I, I get in, I take the train up to the city, I meet with Irv, I said, Irv, I think we got it, Okay. I, I outlined the experiment, and this is what he says to me. Uh, that's a very interesting uh, study, George. We did that two years ago, okay? It doesn't work. So I felt deflated for a, a brief second, and then he says, but that was a very creative idea uh, that I came up with. So, and so he supported the creative mind that I had. And I didn't know I had.
0: And then, so he, and then you started to believe in yourself,
1: because I started you know, to believe in myself. Yeah, and I did insight. research with him, and I finally did solve that problem with another experiment. He gave me first authorship, which is another thing that many professors don't do, or, mm-hmm. or rock. If you worked on his research, he would give you he would cite you in the publication. Many what, what, what
0: was the experiment? I'm just curious. So your creative experiment at that. It was. was he trying
1: to, yeah. It was a, a, an experiment that controlled for certain factors, which, when they were controlled for, uh, established the validity of one trial learning in the verbal learning field, not in the animal research, but in the verbal learning field. So, one trial learning was controversial back then because theoretically it opposed uh, some of the traditional behavioral learning theories, So it was a big issue back then in the early 60s. And so I figured out an experiment. We did it. It worked. We published it. And he gave me first authorship. So imagine getting first authorship in graduate school. It's like it pumps you up very, you know, very much. And And the confidence was building and building. So through the three years uh, of graduate school, my confidence was building. Okay, and t- come internship, okay, only uh, four of us went. Aw- uh, all of the other ones had dropped out because right. they didn't put in the work. Okay, it's one right. of the other things I discovered. Okay, is that you have to work very, you have to work very hard to get what you want, and then you have to have right. luck, and you have to have mentors. And Rock was my mentor. He became my he became my dissertation advisor, and so he supported me all the way through.
0: And so he I, liked I, you. I mean, he was, he was a good guy. He, he he saw that potential, so it's great that you had him
2: as a mentor. I had. To,
0: you, yeah, yes. 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 He he
1: really uh, he supported me, and I worked very hard. I wanted to prove to him that I was a worthy student. Okay, which I was. Right. Okay.
2: And and so we
1: we stayed friends even even afterwards and uh, I, you know he died I saw him just a day, a day or so before he died it was a very moving uh, period of my life uh, he went out to California Jean and I were out there uh, and I saw him just a little while before he died and you know I honored him every time I saw him uh, I would tell him how much I appreciated him and loved him
0: for what he gave to me he gave me.
1: Well, he gave
0: you a chance. That is amazing. I had I, 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 I didn't know the story at all. But he really is the one that gave you that career. Yes, yes. You know. Mm-hmm. So
1: mm-hmm. that was, that was wonderful. Okay. And so mm-hmm. this this book that I wrote, uh, which is really subtitled The professional autobiography in search of truth. Uh, mm-hmm. subtitled, From an Ego to a Soul-Driven Society. That's that's some of the titles that I give it.
2: Right.
1: Uh, and so I got a little bit taste of bullshit in graduate school, but when I went to work at the hospital, it really started to um, become very clear to me that the way in which we were treating patients, okay, and what we were trying to do to cure
0: patients was not working. Okay, but but let me and just ask you the the, the kind of a uh, studies that you did in graduate school was, was that Freudian based or Jungian or what, what no, you was? No, it was
1: basically be it was just basic learning theory, perceptual learning theory. So my was no psychology
0: about ego psychology. It was no, not Freudian.
1: No, I it. didn't. No, my my dissertation was pure perception.
2: Okay. How things
1: looked, which set the stage for later work, okay, that mm-hmm. I write about later on. But this was early research on the way things looked phenomenally, and we talked about this in the interview, okay? Yes. Not no, no, the probably, way you know, which I, which are,
0: I'm really fascinated with, because I think that is still um, a much needed topic to discuss. The idea that's right. That,
1: it's a very big topic, and so I revisited that in the paper I told you I wrote recently for the for the uh, Association of Spiritual Psychology.
2: Uh,
1: right. I, I cite that paper as old wine in new bottles because recent <laughs> research
2: in the new but after, in the, in the, after, after oh,
0: graduate is? school. After graduate school, is that when you went into the Danbury prison to
2: work? To no, no. That was? Well, the,
1: the, sequ- the sequence was, I worked at the hospital. I started yeah. to see a lot of bullshit in the hospital. We got involved in the patient's rights movement. Working, you were working in the
0: psychiatric ward at the hospital?
1: Well, the hospital had many psychiatric wards, okay? I like it was in the 60s, and um, we, you know, things started to happen in the 60s, There was Titicot Follies, which was an expose of a hospital. There was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the film by Michael Douglas. And so we started to become aware that patients weren't being treated uh, in the way we felt were the ideal mental health principles. So uh, three of us got involved in the patient's rights movement and got rid of after... Two or three years, we finally got an independent study. This is, and we got rid of the superintendent. And um, it was a very exciting period of my life. Okay, um, but but
0: because, but how were the patients? What what were you seeing? Well, I mean, how were patients being treated? And were was anybody being helped with any of the methods that you were using?
1: No, no one was being helped. By any of the things that, any of the treatment that we were using, the psychoanalytic, I was trained in psychoanalytic therapy, right? Mm -hmm. That was totally useless. And I told you about this in the other interview. I worked with a gal for five years. She made no progress. And my, and my, my supervisor, I had good supervisors, they always blamed the patient. Okay? They never questioned their own models of how to do treatment. So after a while, it started to dawn on me that there was a lot of bullshit going on that people weren't addressing the real problem. We did not know how to help these people. And instead of owning up to that, instead of saying, you know, I really don't know what to do. I read everything in psychoanalytic therapy to work with these people. Nothing worked.
0: Wait,
1: were these so, people psychotic? They weren't? Your normal...
2: Yes, psychotic. Were well, psychotic, some of them were so psychotic.
1: Were... Yeah. Some of them were just people that their families didn't like, so they threw them into the hospital. Not everybody that winds up in a hospital is crazy, you know. Um, so uh, some people were really disturbed, and some people had uh, minimal problems, but the hospital did not treat patients with dignity, okay? And so they didn't have lawyers, there were no patients' rights, they couldn't, they couldn't have, they did not have a voice, okay, to what, express what, what, what they Were they being given medication?
0: medication yes, only
1: medication. medication. We were doing psychotherapy, and no one believed that psychotherapy was useful except the psychologist of course. The psychiatrist who didn't, who probably knew less than we did, just would give them medication, but no one would get out of the hospital, because... We never trained people how to live in the real world, okay? Right. we were just, So the therapy was useless. So after a couple of years of this, I started to read different books, okay? And the yes. four books that changed my life, I'll tell you the books. One book was called Asylums. It's a book about total institutions. I had been given this book by a social psychology professor, Hershkowitz, when I read it the first time, I said, this has nothing to do with me. I'm going to be a therapist. A few uh-huh. years later, I'm devouring this book like this guy, Goffman, who wrote the book, is a god. He knew everything about total institutions, and we were living it. So that was one book. Uh-huh. Another book was written by Jay Haley, a, a very famous family therapist. He became very famous
0: what, what, what did Asylum say? What was there in the book that you related to? It was
1: about... It was about, it was, the, it was talking to the same issues that one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and Titicott with the dehumanization process in mental hospitals.
2: People well, don't you, think,
0: don't you think that these therapists think they have a right to dehumanize these people because they're crazy yes. anyway, and that, that was a whole abusive Point of view, in a way, it still goes on, I think. It
1: still it? goes on, although I'm, I'm not familiar because I don't go to those places. Yes. It was, it was the, the, the therapist or the psychiatrist or the doctors felt they knew what's best and they would totally disregard anything that the patient said. And they would, uh, there, there was uh, electroconvulsive therapy, there was uh, the hydrotherapy, there was heavy duty medications. Patients couldn't say anything. I, I go into a lot of vignettes uh, mm-hmm. about my, the stories that I have about what happened in that hospital. Um, well, in a, in, we, in a
0: way, they're even treated subhuman because they're in the hospital and labeled and put a label on psychotic or schizophrenic. Right. Therefore, they're less than human, right? That's
1: right. That's right. And not only that, the patients themselves started to believe the bullshit. So if you uh, ask people what was wrong, you know, why did you come to the hospital, what's, what's your problem, they would give, they would say, well, I'm manic depressive," as if, as if that is an explanation of anything, okay? It it's, not mean, an explanation. it's a label, it
0: doesn't mean It's just a nothing. label.
1: And yeah. labels become reified as if that's an explanation. Labels are not uh, explanations of
2: anything. Okay. Well, wasn't the and, other
0: influence, I don't know if it was you directly, but I remember you mentioning him in the 60s, was R.D. Lang. R.D. Lang. I tell a
1: story about R.D. Lang. R.D. Lang was one of our heroes because he worked with psych, uh, schizophrenics in England, okay? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I got very enamored, uh, as many of us did, with his writings, The Divide Itself, Sanity, Madness, and The Family. So he was one of the people that that changed our way of thinking. And we once went to a lecture. Gene and I went to a lecture in New Haven when he came to lecture. And, we, and he comes out and he starts to talk. And I'm listening very intently for some pearls of wisdom, right? And right. Uh, after a while, I don't understand one word he's talking about. And I think it's me. So I look around and I discover that everybody is looking around. No one is understanding anything that he's talking about. Because, and, and so so finally someone in the back, and I write about this too, someone in the, in the back said, oh, Dr. Lang, I understand you've been on a whirlwind tour and you seem a little tired. Is there any way we could help you? It's a beautiful, a beautiful statement. And so instead of him lecturing, uh, we asked him specific questions and he was able to answer those a little bit more clearly and concisely because he was just rambling on there. And no one could understand uh-huh. him. Okay. But uh-huh. that was a beautiful night, but I don't remember anything he said except right. that moment. Okay. Except <laughs> but his, he, he is a brilliant writer, the
0: politics of brilliant. experience. And oh, yeah. Experience. Uh, you, can't, you, you can't argue with someone else's experience. I mean, that's their no. experience. No.
1: That's and, right. I so, so he was. Other, one. Yeah. Go
0: ahead.
1: No, the, other, people, know, the other
0: person is Thomas Saj, right?
1: Thomas Zive was the other influence. So the three people that influenced me, four people, was uh, Goffman uh, with asylums, uh, Jay Haley, the famous family therapist, Thomas Zive, who wrote The Myth of Mental Illness. So that opened up a whole world for us. And, uh, of course, reality therapy. And we started to practice a different form of therapy. This is before behavior therapy. This is before cognitive behavior therapy. This is before any of that was emerging we started to do uh, reality based therapy ward government giving patients more power okay um, and yeah. of course the the staff hated us okay and we were ostracized. you were doing this
0: in the hospital you were I think
1: yes and so we were ostracized uh, we we could we were we were cut off. We were threatened with being fired. We went to the newspapers. A whole investigation took place. Uh, we had been documenting all of what we thought were the bad treatment. We were vindicated. We were given the Mental Health Bell Award from the state for the work that we did. We developed the well, patient's bill of rights. Which, which right.
0: hospital was
1: this? is the Fairfield Hills Hospital in Connecticut. It no right. longer exists. No I, so you
0: did a great, you did a great thing. You stood up for your patients. You actually yeah, tried something
1: yeah, different. Yeah, and that, 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 yeah. that part of me, which I never thought I had in me, but uh, looking out for the underdog kind of thing. Okay, mm-hmm. that I think came from your grandmother. my, right. my mother was that. From kind your of mother. My mother, yeah, she's that kind of person, uh, and so I think I got some of that. Because I wasn't an activist. I didn't even... We were scared most of the time about what was going to happen to us. And at the end of the investigation, uh, they wanted us to stay. And I said, enough is enough. So I wanted... I couldn't get a job because you know what happens to whistleblowers. You can't work anyplace. No one wants to hire you. So I contacted a colleague of mine that I interned with, Marty Rushmarin, a very close friend of mine, recently... Deceased. I'll tell you about him, but it's in the book anyway. Well, so but, Marty was, but, before, but, but I just but, want to
2: ask you before
0: we get there, what was reality therapy that you would, what, is, what did that mean?
1: Reality therapy was when we started to hold patients responsible for their behavior. We no uh, longer saw them as patients, we saw them as people with problems, and they could do something about it. They needed support. And so that's uh, what we did.
2: So that's huge. The,
0: that's, that's, that's amazing. That's tremendous. So, so
1: what I'll give you the story that I tell about this is that I, my friend Lenny and I start to do a reality therapy with a group of 30 backward ward pa- women patients. Okay? 30 women come into a room, 20 or 30, and we're supposed to do therapy with these people. And so we changed our total approach from what we were previously doing, just listening and interpreting, to reality therapy, holding patients responsible for their behavior. So uh-huh. at the start of each group, this, this patient, Alberta, would go into the middle of the group, do a, a turnaround, a pirouette, and fall to the floor. And previously, uh, everybody would jump to Alberta, oh, Alberta, what's the matter, what's the matter? Okay, and so at this time, when she did the same thing, we said, everybody back in your chair. Alberta got herself on the floor. She'll get herself off the floor, which is exactly what she did. So we started to hold patients responsible while yet also being supportive of them. So it was wow, a total that's, that's, that's
0: huge. That's a huge um, advance.
1: And so we started ward government where patients would have a say in how they wanted to organize their their wards, which is alien to the system at that time. Of course, the staff didn't like it because they don't want patients to have any say. They just want to medicate them, okay, and so they can push them around, okay? So that was the beginning of my interest in therapeutic communities, okay, Uh, Uh and the power of community, but I couldn't get a job, so before, so I, I, I couldn't get a job. My friend Marty gets me a job at the Clifford Beers Clinic, okay, as a clinical researcher, uh, and some more, so there was bullshit at the hospital. There was a little bullshit at the clinic, and I'll, I talk about that because they were behind the time. They weren't doing family therapy. They weren't doing behavior therapy. They were still stuck in the old psychoanalytic model, where parents could not be seen with their children because the parents were, were perceived to contaminate the therapy. This is the old psychoanalytic bullshit model, okay? Wait,
0: let me understand that. Are you saying if you were seeing a, a, a young person for therapy, their parents couldn't be there because it would influence their psychology?
1: Yes, yeah, they, would, they would negatively... It would negatively influence, according to the the therapist and the psychoanalytic model, it would negatively influence the therapy if parents were there. This is before the this is before the family therapy movement. The family right. therapy movement started in the late 60s at the Mental Research Institute of Palo Alto. There was some there was the uh, there was the New York Institute. There was a the Yale Institute. So, but very few people were doing family therapy at that time.
0: But, but, but you thought there was something wrong with this. I mean, you thought maybe it would be okay for parents to be there. Of course
1: it was child. okay because we had a behavioral point of view. We said parents are probably reinforcing inappropriate behavior. Okay? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so they needed to learn how to parent. So you needed to go in, in the therapy, to try to understand the parents if we wanted to understand the child. Okay, we had to understand the system. We had to understand the family system to understand what the ch- the child. You can't isolate the child from the family system. Okay,
0: because so, it's not necessarily because wait, it's not necessarily the child that is the problem. It's the that's dynamics right. of the relationship that's the problem.
1: That's exactly right, and, t- and, and kids,
0: and, and that's why family therapy is probably. More important than individual therapy, right?
1: That's right. In many cases, that's true, okay? Right.
0: Right. now,
1: mm-hmm. um, uh, but families, uh, because families are essentially crazy places, okay?
2: Uh, uh-huh.
1: They can drive people crazy. Families can drive people crazy. In fact, I wrote a paper called Parallels Between the Pathological Family and a Mental Hospital. It was published in <laughs> Psychiatry. Okay. So because you're, I just, you're saying wow. that
0: families, nuclear families, have a parallel between a psychiatric ward.
1: That's you know? right. They can drive people nuts.
0: Okay. Because okay. What, it, what, what's the dynamics of that? Is that because within a family, people um, have, feel they have a permission to act out any extreme behavior they want?
1: Well, no, parents, because of the way parents were raised, they have certain attitudes, okay, towards their children. Okay, so uh, when a kid starts to act a certain way, the parent just responds to them like they would respond to and sometimes some of these parents really do dysfunctional things to their children, as I have done to my children, okay? <laughs> I haven't always been the, the, the best parent. I've not always reacted in the best ways to my kids, okay? Uh, maybe you, but <laughs> maybe, that's maybe not, but 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 I'm not
0: seeing a solution. I mean, that's just how... Parents and children are, I mean... Yeah, know, but, we, like, but
1: you see, if, if you reinforce inappropriate behavior, and parents do that inadvertently, parents do not know how to communicate to their children. They don't know how to listen to their children. They don't know how to reinforce positive behavior. They're more interested in focusing on the negatives rather than the positives.
2: So uh-huh.
1: what family therapy addresses are all of these issues. It, they addresses they address triangles the 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 power struggles between the parents that are acted out on the kid.
0: Okay, uh,
2: there's a whole, whole of you,
0: Let me just ask you a side question: Do you think it would be better if we didn't have the just the family that we lived in community? Would you think that's a more appropriate, more human way it depends of, on the, of living? It depends on the kind of community. So I will tell
1: you about the community that I felt was useful, and uh, which I get to. So after about a year or so, and I go a lot of stories at the Clifford Beers Clinic, which talk to the issue of bullshit and the craziness of psychoanalytic therapy, okay? okay. But then after a year or so, yeah, maybe a year and a half, I still wanted to get back into the therapeutic community idea, okay? And there were no therapeutic communities out there except... Being run by Daytop. Daytop is a therapeutic community for drug addicts. Okay. Okay. And one was being run at the federal correctional prison in Danbury, where we were living. Oh, so I, I wanted yes, to I that. remember
0: you living in Danbury.
1: We yes. lived in Danbury, yeah. and so the prison, the federal prison, was in Danbury. They had a therapeutic community for drug addicts, and there was an opening. Okay. So I applied for that job. Uh, I didn't think I would get it. This was in 1970, 71. I didn't think I'd get it because it was during the Vietnamese war, you know, uh, situation. And I would right. attend uh, anti-war rallies. And I probably was filmed by the FBI or something. So I never thought I would get the job because I was a resistor, in a sense.
2: Right. right.
1: But I was hired. And during that time, in the early 70s, the, the prison held various groups of people. They had all of these drug addicts, okay? They had war resistors, like the Berrigan brothers. I don't know if you remember the Berrigan. I these do remember priests. them. They
0: were, they were radical they were free. priests. But, yes. radical.
1: So they were housed there and organized crime. So those, those are large groups of that kind of people. And I ran, um, but there weren't
0: like murder. There weren't any murderers there. It wasn't like
1: um, no, no, no. It was a medium, a medium security prison. It was a medium security prison with open wards, essentially. Okay, okay? and so in my community of fifty men, okay, uh, and I tell all sorts of stories about what went on in that community. My first day working as the head of that community, I was confronted by an 18-year-old drug addict for my stupidity and my ignorance, and I should basically shut the fuck up because I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. This 18-year-old kid said that. Yeah, because he was already part of the community, and this was my first day I didn't know how it all worked. It took me six months or so not to wake up with nightmares. It was so intense. It was everybody was confronted every day with bullshit. If you bullshitted, if you weren't straight, if you tried to triangulate, if you didn't, weren't honest with your feelings, you would be dealt with severely, and that included me. Okay, Wait, even so though
0: I... You had to be honest and raw because then people would call you honest, you're
1: saying. They called you on everything. They called the me on the everything. Inmates,
0: the, the, the inmates would call you out, you're saying.
1: That's right. And they did.
0: Okay. They called me out
1: and they called everybody else out. Because and you the had rules
0: to tell the truth. In, what? Those you have, in those moments, moments where they called you out, you had to say, "Yeah, I wasn't being. Yeah, wasn't the, uh, yeah. Wasn't the,
1: the basic, yeah. the basic aspect of of the community was tell the truth. Okay, tell the truth. There were several rule. In my five or almost six years there, with these drug addicts on the street, I wouldn't trust them one minute because uh, some of them were violent, also. There was, yeah. no inc- there was only one incident of a mild violence episode in the six years I was there. You know why? Why? Uh, because the rules were very clear. People took responsibility for themselves and each other. Okay? There was ab- yeah. The rules were no violence. There were even no threats of violence. And you couldn't even look at someone with violent eyes, or else you would be dealt with severely, okay? You'd be kicked out of the family. There was um, no drugs, of course, because urines were taken, and there Mm. was psychological safety. In other words, at any moment in time, any member of the group, including me, could call a group if we were upset. We were always available to one another 24-7, and you could not... Talk about each other outside the family. It was called the family. Wait,
0: let me let me see if I get an idea of what you're saying. So you were assigned fifty men in right. our community, and you formed the community, and you were sort of the therapist. But it was um, it was a sort of bonding
2: experience. This community, would you say? Yes, it
1: was very it was very bonding. You you were, you uh, developed very intense related, close relationship with these guys because you knew everything uh-huh. about them. Right. We would have groups. Right. I was in 15 groups a week
0: with these guys. Uh, uh-huh. 15 and, groups and then, a week.
1: Did you see
0: an effect of that? I mean, you weren't doing psychotherapy. You were mostly listening, but what, what, what happened? No, no,
1: we, would, we were doing confrontational therapy.
0: Which means what?
1: We confronted... If so, let, let, here's what we would do. Someone would get a feeling about another person. Here's the way it worked, okay? Now, these were run, it was run by inmates. Inmates, residents would start off uh, cleaning up the toilets, and depending upon their, uh, how responsible they were, they would move up the hierarchy so they became coordinators in the therapeutic unit, working very closely with the staff. So staff and residents worked very closely together with consultants from the day-top therapeutic community on the outside. So we had people from the outside coming in, we had the residents, and we had staff. Staff were me, social workers, and trained counselors who were previously uh, custodial. They were trained to become counselors. Now, if I had feelings about you, at the beginning of the day, I would go to the coordinator and drop a slip. I would put a slip in, to them, saying, "I have feelings about Steinfeld." Right? What, what,
0: what do you mean by feelings? Like you don't like? I'm upset you're... with. Okay, I'm upset okay.
1: with about okay. something. Okay. Okay. And yeah. the groups would then be structured so the person who had the indictment and the indicted would be in the same group. Okay. The groups were organized around this these confrontational meetings. Okay. And right. so. at At the beginning of the group, the leader, could be me, it could be anybody, uh, they would say, uh, who has feelings? So a guy would raise his hand, and he would then, the leader would say, all right, get your feelings off. And so it could last an hour, it could last 15 minutes. The guy would yell and scream at that person about how he hated him, and how he would want to rip his heart out, and violent, explosive language, Okay? Uh-huh. Uh, about how angry he was at this guy for various reasons. didn't matter what it was, okay? Right. Then, right. Now, after that, after everybody got finished expressing their feelings, we would now try to tease that apart. What was really bothering you about this person? Why? Uh, I then we, you, we would you you, you would lead. You would, that would be your job to sort of lead? That. No, it would be anybody's job. Not only my job, be everybody's job. Oh, okay, okay. Because the residents had been trained how to do this, too. Okay. So what's really going on, Harry? Why are you so pissed off at Dr. Steinfeld, right? Well, he's Jewish, he's a psychologist, he thinks he's better than us, Uh, he didn't do what he he said he was going to do, whatever. They would be upset about anything that I did, or other people. And so that's the way... Some of the groups ran. These were called encounter groups. They were also, if people screwed up, they would be given learning experiences. They might have to sit in a crib, okay, wearing a dunce cap because he acted like an idiot. So they put a dunce cap on him. was
0: Was this influenced by what Fritz Perls was doing on the West Coast with his encounter group? Who was that? You know Fritz Perls, the salt therapy. The yeah, I know
1: Fritz Perls, but I don't know if uh, I don't know if Fritz Perls was running his encounter groups like we were running our encounter groups. Maybe
0: not. But I, no, maybe not.
1: Okay. But yeah, uh, but uh, but anyway, so we would do if, if a person really screwed up, um, he would be given these learning experience. He might be given a silent treatment. No one can talk to him. Okay. Uh huh. Right. And so to, to let him know that he's not an isolated person, okay, people care, but you're fucked up, right, and you have to do right. something about it. You have to change your behavior, okay? That, would, would
0: you find that people were more caring towards each other after these well, encounters? People
1: loved each other. People, when people left, you know, after three, two or three years, when they left, we would have these Uh, huge uh, going-away send-off experiences where everybody in the family would give a message to the guy who was going out into the community about what they meant to him or what he meant to them. The the
0: family being the community of men, is that what you're saying? The
1: the community of men, there would be tears and crying and what you did for me and, you know, go out there and do your, you know, supportive statements and, you know, just... Very, very involved because you got to know people very closely. Not only to So a that category. that
0: that was refreshing that was not the bullshit. That was the No That was the good, that was the real stuff there.
1: That was the real that was the most honest environment I've ever been in. That's what I uh-huh. say in my book. The most uh-huh. honest environment I've ever been in was that prison. The therapeutic prison.
0: In that prison, didn't you also start the Ram Dass Prison Ashram Program?
1: Uh, yes. In the prison, I got exposed to several things. In addition to this way of doing work in a therapeutic community, I got exposed to transactional analysis, of which I was a member for about 40 years, the work of Eric Byrne, games People, Play, etc., cetera, uh, and, you know, went to their conferences. And then, of course, I got exposed to Ramdas in about 1972-3. Okay, this this story is a uh, to my uh, another another person who came like Bernie Starr came into my life. Right. Joe was an inmate. Joe was an inmate, and he says one day, "Hey Doc, they're taking us out on a field trip down to Danbury. Why don't you and your wife come?" I think you'll find it interesting. I said, uh, "Why are they taking you out, Joe?" Uh, well, we're going to see a guy named Swami Sachidananda." To okay. which I said, "Who the fuck is Swami Satchidananda? I had never heard of yoga, Sachidananda. I knew nothing about all of this. But he yes. looked me right in the eye. Joe looks me right in the eye and says, "I think you'll enjoy the experience." Gene and I went down. It was a beautiful experience. He had just come from India. He started the Integral Yoga Institute in Danbury. It became a national yoga institute. He was a beautiful person. A month later or so, he said, I've been in touch with a guy named Paul Rollins. He wants to start a yoga group in the prison. Okay? So I meet with Paul. I click with him immediately. He is a student of Ramdas. Ramdas was teaching meditation in New York City. Paul was living in Danbury, but going into the city to take the teachings with Ramdas. Ramdas was mm-hmm. sending people into the prison ashram project. Okay, so Paul was yeah. going to be one of those people who came into our prison, right, to teach us yoga and meditation. Okay, this is 1972, right. 73, right? right. And right. so I go to my warden, and I say, "Hey, Max." Uh, this guy wants to teach yoga. He wants to really try to change the atmosphere of the prison, okay? And Max, the associate warden, says, be careful, Steinfeld. They're going to bring in contraband, you know, so I want you to be there. I said, thank you very much, Max. That was a, a, a great gift he, he gave me. So for the next few years, Paul would come in once a week, lead us in the yoga group, pastrika breathing, meditation, He brought in meditation teachers. The first person he brought in, uh, one of the first, was Soma Krishna from New York
2: Uh
1: to lead us in a meditation. And she says, when she talks to us, ever since I've been meditating, I haven't been anxious, angry, or depressed. That's what she says. And I Uh say to myself, holy shit. I knew nothing. I never heard of meditation before that. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. I said, this is the world in which we work, with anger, depression, and anxiety. You mean you could get over anger, depression, and and anxiety through meditation? So that's what we started to do. That's when I first got interested in Ramdas, attended all his meetings, got his tapes, listening to him. That was like a spiritual
0: awakening. That was your spiritual awakening. Yes. 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 Before that, you you thought... Religion was something you
2: had to do, spirituality, there was no... No I, had no, I had
1: no spiritual, I had no religion. Uh, uh, Judaism never took to, with me, it never felt right. I never felt right to have an angry God, even when I was a kid it never made sense to me. So I go to my rabbi anyway, uh, while I'm there, because I, uh, I want to see what my rabbi in Danbury, a big shot actually, he's a big shot... Uh, Maybe he has something to tell me that gives me the same feeling that Eastern spirituality gives me, okay? But, right. uh, but I, which I wasn't exposed to. So I go to the rabbi, I say, Rabbi, I'm getting, I, I need a spiritual connection. I don't have it with my training. Well, what can you tell me? Because I'm getting into Hinduism and Buddhism. You know what he says? Think. Buddhism, Shmudism. You know what I said to him? Thank you, Rabbi, I left.
0: I walked out of his office.
1: You had nothing to tell me.
0: That was the last time you saw Ram Dass.
1: You know, you know, because then I spoke to Ramdas about. It. He gave me some books to read about he gave Jewish some... spirituality. So you, you
0: actually you met Ramdas at that point in the seventies.
1: Yes, I met Ramdas at some of the retreats I went to. Uh huh. Yeah.
0: And and, and, you know, and what's amazing about Ramdas is he's such a beautiful speaker, and he he knows how to communicate these spiritual yeah. concepts. Yes, that's what he meant. Like. Yes. Yeah. And, and, of course, he was a, psych, a, a, psychiatrist, a yes. psychiatrist at Harvard, so he understood
2: that... And he, his uh, basic yeah.
1: teaching, yeah. To this, yeah. his basic teaching, when he decided to stay and take the teaching when he met yeah. Maharaji, yeah. his, his guru, the yeah. first teaching he got was given to him by a person who didn't speak. He just wrote it on a blackboard, and he said, "Ramdas, meditate on this." This was, but he did it in Hindu. That was translated. When a pickpocket meets a saint, all he sees are his pocket.
0: Uh, that that went back to that original idea that exactly. you had about the, exactly. the guy who was diagnosing these homunculi. Exactly. Right?
1: Exactly. We only see, we only see what our mind tells us to see. Right. And the mind. Yeah. The mind is conditioned by all, and this is what Ruiz talks about in the Four Agreements. This is what Ramdas talks. about. This is what all spiritual people talk about. And this is what and the in neuro-, in neuro... And are. in a way.
0: It's a more of a cognitive thing than a spiritual a, thing,
1: in a sense. Exactly. It's a cognitive... Buddha was the first cognitive therapist. Uh-huh. Buddha said, "In we create reality. Okay? Our mind yeah. creates reality. Okay? Right. And the mind is made yeah. up of all of the teachings and learnings that we've been exposed to. And so that's what we see. We see what our mind tells us to see. And right. that issue is... Huge in cognitive psychology, it's huge in spiritual work, and it's huge in the neurosciences. Okay, which right. I think, because if you look at the neuroscientists and their interest in implicit memory, implicit memory are those memories which exist in us but we don't know where they came from. It just seems as if it's true. Where and, do they well, come from? It,
0: those memories. What?
1: They come from our
2: experiences.
1: They come from our experiences, but we don't remember the experiences. We just pick them up as we go along about what reality is, and so we, like, we give, me, give me an example of that. Hmm. Give me an
0: example they, of something.
2: Well,
1: uh, well, or, or, or. Jews are cheap. Oh.
2: Okay. I see.
1: You don't have to. You don't. You don't even have to have heard that, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Okay? Yeah. Or all the, you know, these overgeneralizations, these belief systems that are implanted in us mm-hmm. based on the people who raised us. We don't even know right. how they came into us. Explicit okay. memory, explicit memory are those memories that we remember when they were formed. I was riding a I bike, see. my father was holding me, uh, I remember that, that was a nice experience. These implicit memories are all of the learnings that are just part of our psyche unconsciously, right? Uh, And they just lead us to think that what we see is true. Right. That's not true. And most of what we think
0: is not true, right? So then how did that spiritual awakening influence your approach to people?
1: Well, since I know that what I believe generally is not true... (laughs) <laughs> okay, I have to figure out what 's true, okay? What is true? What is going to guide my behavior so what's going to guide my behavior hopefully if i 'm in tune and awakened to some extent are wisdom and compassion of the Buddha to mm-hmm. do right action to do to do ethical work to to watch out for the seven deadly sins that exist in all of us. To so watch out for greed and avarice and sloth and envy and all of those negative forces that exist in all of us because we're all human, okay? Mm-hmm. And we have to watch out for them, okay? So we can transcend them. Right. But if so, you're not aware of them...
0: Yeah. But, but But as you are working with your clients or your patients... How did you translate that into a therapy?
1: Well, I, the first, I, I, teach them, I teach them cognitive therapy. You know, what you, what, what you feel, the anxiety you feel, the depression that you feel, the anger that you feel are really based on the thoughts that are running around in your mind. Are you aware of the thoughts that are running around when you get upset like you do? And most people right. say, no. Okay, so, so, so now what I want you to do as you go through the week is when you feel any degree of upsetness, right, I want you to stop and ask a very simple question. What's running through your mind at this point? And write it down. And we will go over this moment to moment to see if the thought you have is useful or not useful. Did that, thought, did that thought lead to a useful emotion and positive behavior, or did that thought lead you to feel badly and then do things that you're not feeling good about? So,
2: so then, essentially... are
0: you able to point out that people have a choice in what they think? Yes.
1: Yes, of course they have a choice, but you only have a choice if you know you have a choice. If you don't right. know you have a choice, you don't have a choice.
2: Right. And
1: that's what right. I teach them. I teach them, right now, you, you think that this perception of reality is true. But there is another way of viewing. There's another perspective, which if you were able to think about, would change the way you experience this encounter, this reality. Okay? Right. Are you willing to do that? Now, people say, and this is where... This is what the book is really all about, okay? The book is all about resistance to change.
2: Uh, okay, people
0: don't want to even, change, even though they say they want to change, because if they change, they would have to do something different than what they're doing, and they like doing what they're doing. That's why they're doing it, right?
1: Even, even though they say they don't like it, and it brings them misery. They're, but they're, See, Freud, so the, my second part of the first part of the book is all my experiences. The second part right. of, deals with the resistances from a variety of perspectives, from Freud to current level, okay? And the fourth part, see, the problem with psychoanalytic therapy, they knew about resistance. But what Freud would do was spend years analyzing resistance. He would analyze uh-huh. it. Okay, and it get acted out in therapy. So people would spend years in therapy analyzing their resistance, right?
2: Right. Which,
1: right. which made the therapist a lot of money, okay, and cost the patient right. a lot of money, okay. You know, so so this is the collusion. My the, the one of the premises of the book is there's collusion between the therapist and the client not to change. Because so not, it's to, useful,
0: change. By, not by to change. By talking about the resistance means you don't have to change it.
1: You don't have to change. Right. So you talk about it, and you talk about it, as Woody Allen said, I've been in therapy, I'm getting better. I've been in therapy for 12 years. I'm getting better. I can now eat without a bib.
2: So, <laughs> right. So, you know, and
1: I, and I know people, and I tell stories about people been in, being in therapy for years and years. And there's no change, because the but therapist, they don't, they don't
0: want to change, and the therapist doesn't want them to change exactly out of a client exactly uh, uh, exactly. I, exactly, so, so they just have like a friendly chat every week, and that's uh, right, and that's, that's right and, I can, and both and both yeah. people are happy because that's right i
1: can I can complain about my boss. And my husband and my wife and my kids and my therapist can nod with sympathy and compassion. Uh, put the check in the box, please. Okay? It's, it's,
0: and I'll see it's you next week for some more complaints, right?
1: right that's right. I'll okay. that's, well, my therapist. Now, I, I should say one thing. Look, I was in therapy the first time, essentially. Three years, okay, with Sam, a guy named Sam. Okay? I saw him twice a week. He may have said four things in three years. Okay? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: He listened. He was a very good listener. And I do think that listening to a patient who maybe never had anybody to talk to is very important. That is important. But after that, the question becomes, you've told me a lot of things about your life. I understand to some extent what you've been through. What is it that you want to change? That's where it gets, that's the rub. What is it do you Wait, want to change? And, and,
0: and did he say that to you?
1: Who? My therapist? Yeah. No, my therapist never said that. He just listened. Oh. oh
2: that's what I did. That. The, <laughs>
1: that's, that's what I did for the first few years until, until we started to change my approach with cognitive therapy, mm-hmm. behavior therapy, uh,
0: and so, most so, recently. So, well, so people aren't happy, but they really yeah. don't want to change. But they do want to change because they're not really happy. But they're, so how do you get people to change is what I'm asking. Ah, me. so
2: here's
1: – now, that's very good. Okay, so now you say to people, I've listened to your story. What is it that you would like to change? You seem to be uh, feeling lousy. Your thinking is a little distorted. You make a lot of cognitive errors. Mm-hmm. You behave in ways that don't bring you fulfillment. Do you want yes. to change the way you think? Do you want to change the way you feel? you want to change what you do in order to bring you better outcomes? Let's develop a contract so we know when therapy ends.
2: If you don't know when
1: therapy ends, it never ends. And, 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 you get, don't want
0: it, and most therapists don't want it to end. Because they, they don't want are, it to end. Yeah. They don't want it to end.
1: That's right. So... But since, so you know, so, so cognitive and have knew about this for a long time, and they approach it differently from the analytic point of view, the cognitive point of view. They all have different approaches um, to, to, to helping people change. However, over the last 20-odd years, you know I've been interested in the energy healing
0: techniques. Right. Tapping. The, the tapping technique, yes. Yeah.
1: That is, that is a cure for resistance. Okay. But how
0: does that work? I mean, it, it, it seems a little. You ask odd. a person,
1: you ask a person, okay, a question. Do you want to change? And he nods his head. I, I, I ask him to, to say yes or no with the head, don't not with his voice, but with their head, right? You want to change? Yes, he goes yes. Uh, uh, it'll be good for me to change. Get Yes. Uh, I don't deserve to change. Uh-oh. Okay? You start Wait, what, to what, get.
0: Up, what what comes up when they say I don't deserve to change? What happens?
1: They can't say... If I ask them, I deserve to change, you might get
2: no. Uh... Uh,
1: or I'm, a, uh, I'm afraid to change,
2: uh-huh. you might get
1: a yes. You might get uh, something bad is going to happen if I change, right? Uh-huh. So I li- have listed through my research about 100 statements, uh-huh. all of which are potentially resistances to
0: change.
2: I, so see, now, I see.
1: So ne- now okay. if I get to the resistance, if you don't get to the resistance, you never change, you never get better. Right. No matter how much therapy you're in, you will always sabotage it. So you have right. to get past the resistance before you solve the problem. You don't solve, right. you, you don't get resistance, you don't solve the problem because you're going to sabotage it. We know that for depressives. We know that for addictive people. We know that people who are anxious all their life. We know that people who are depressed for a long time they have an investment in not changing. Right, because they're used to being the way they
2: are, and that's yeah, right. That's right, and they, right. And, they yes.
1: and and the people around them are used to, and so there are consequences if you change. The people around you are going to change in relation to you. Okay. So people,
0: so so how do you break through that? Yes.
1: So I tell them exactly what I'm telling you. <laughs> I tell them, <laughs> I, I I I tell them what I'm telling you that unless you uh, overcome your resist, so I give them. These techniques to overcome their emotional distress, right? And we practice in the office, these tapping techniques, you know? Uh, And they work in the office. So a person is anxious. uh, We overcome their phobia or their anxiety in the office, right? So I say, now go home, and whenever Uh you feel a stressful moment coming on, I want you to do this procedure. You know what happens? What? They don't do it.
0: But why does the procedure work anyway? And let's say they did do it. Why is that procedure so uh, therapeutic for people?
1: Because it gets rid of your emotional distress very rapidly. Yeah,
0: you but how does it work? You're, tap, you're tapping on the ends of your acupuncture points, but how does it actually work to shift people? I'm just curious in the, in the science it, behind it.
1: Well, you're asking a very good question because the uh-huh. theory, the theory is that your thoughts create a blockage in the energy meridian system,
2: Uh, a perturbation.
1: And when you tap, it sends a message through the energy systems that clears away the blockage. That's the theory. I'm not sure the the theory is true, but Um. it works. Now, I think other things are at play here, Okay, uh, yeah. and that, that still needs to be investigated, and I talk about that too. But that's the theory. The theory is that the cause of all emotional distress is a blockage in the energy system. You tap on these energy spots, and it clears those, those blockages away, and you release
0: this, all of those he, This began with a guy named Callahan. They called it the Callahan Happy that he announced, for. Happening. I yes. know
2: it
1: popular. EFT, yeah. uh, I think it's another That's name for it. That's uh, right. I, I, first, I first got the work of Callahan. The whole story that, you know, how I got to know his work, this was about 24 years ago, right? right that right. I first got to know Callahan's work. He just died, by the way, in November. Oh, he did? Oh, he I did.
0: Didn't know that. Brilliant.
1: He, he came up with all of this, and Gary Craig studied with him and developed a simplified procedure out of the Callahan Method, and everybody is using Gary Craig's procedure throughout the world. And it was just right. approved. It was just approved by the American Psychological Association for Trauma and Anxiety State. And you know, APA wow. doesn't
0: I didn't, just I didn't realize it. that. But, but going yeah. back to your point, when people get home and they have the option to do this procedure, they wouldn't do it because they still got they were still stuck,
1: and they didn't want to change. No, they don't tell... They, they give me all sorts of reasons why they don't do it. Why right. I couldn't think of it. I didn't have time to think of it. Uh, they give me all sorts of, uh, you know... Oh, it didn't enter my mind. They give me all sorts of reasons. So then right. when they start giving me a lot of reasons, then I go, well, let's take a closer look, and maybe there's some other reasons that you are not doing the work. Of course, therapy is not... Uh, therapy is not something that you do from session to se- uh, from Only in the sessions, you do therapy 24/7. I see. I mean, meaning that you're always working
0: with yourself you're, if you oh, want right. to change. Yeah, you're always
1: you're always working with yourself. And Ramdas, which is beautiful, because Ramdas says, at any moment in time, you have the potential for awakening. And get f- to get free, and so wow. I see these emotional, uh, these emotional freedom techniques. When you feel any stress, any tension, any anxiety, any deep sadness, any anger, frustration, if you were serious about your work, you would yeah. tap at, at the moment that you feel it, and you would be. And able you're to saying it. things would shift at that. Things point. would definitely shift. Yes. But, you, but, sure. but
0: what do you say to the person who says, yes, I was going on you, but I didn't think of doing this? I mean, then obviously, you know, but how do you help those people?
1: Well, I, I, I go back and I do a, an assessment of uh, is there any other reason that we will explore that would keep you from doing that which is useful to do. And I give him a list of about 100 items. And then we tap on those items because that's the first thing we have to get over before we get to your problem.
2: So if
1: I don't...
0: Can you give them a list and say, I didn't do this because...
1: uh, Yes, I don't deserve to get
0: healthy. I see. I don't don't deserve to get get
1: healthy. So I tap. Even though I don't deserve to get healthy, I totally and completely love and accept myself. And then I test them again. Until they can say, yes, I deserve to get healthy, then we can work on the problem.
0: I see. So you go through each one. If there's any resistance at all, there's something that's come up that's not complete. And then you work with people in a way to confront their subconscious beliefs about themselves.
1: Yes, yes. And about anything else, yes. About life, about others, about people carry around a lot of false beliefs. Limiting belief. Right. You know, we're full of limiting belief, you know, based on, uh, you know, we started to believe something when we were kids, and we believe them, and we don't challenge them.
0: So is this like the uh, antidote to psychotherapy? I mean, is this like you're saying psychotherapy doesn't work, but there are these energy techniques that, in a way, are beyond psychology.
1: I think uh, psychotherapy, they just did a study. Psychotherapy is generally useful, but this—the clinical research. This guy Scott Miller just—I uh, saw a recent thing at the Evolution of Psychotherapy conference. He says the effectiveness of psychotherapy has not improved. Has not improved in 40 years. Now, why is that? The effectiveness uh-huh. has not improved in 40 years. We're not getting better. Uh-huh. Okay. We're not helping people more. People are getting better. They talk to people, and that feels better. But we're not really helping people get better more than we did 40 years ago. And I think these emotional freedom techniques have that possibility. Uh I I believe that, that...
0: Yeah, no, I'm just curious. So back to your story in a little bit, when you go going back to the Dan Perry prison days, you have a spiritual awakening, and then Mm -hmm. you progress, and and then when is it that you really um, discover, uh, get rid of these old ideas? I guess all along you were were challenging your own belief system and your own worldview, and you were progressing towards something new. Well, you know, through
1: Ramdas's, you know, basic premise, wherever we look, we find what we're looking for. Okay, that perception, right. which resonated to early research that I did many years ago on the area of perception. Okay, uh, right. which I describe uh, a little bit. Not, it's not in in this book, but in the paper I wrote for the Association of Spiritual psychotherapy, I wrote a paper where I integrate the work perception and the new neurosciences, okay? Um, So, uh, cognitive therapy taught me to question things. Cognitive therapy, the work of Albert Ellis, who I trained with, Yeah, I trained with Ellis, and he taught me to challenge my thinking. Okay? And then the cognitive therapist that came out of that work, and then the cognitive behavior therapist, and I integrate that with my spiritual work, Buddhism, uh, and now the energy healing techniques. So I have a sort of holistic approach to my therapy, which I don't really go into a lot because the book is about resistance, not about how to do therapy. That's a different book. But the book is about what you say, resistance. Resistance. Resistance on the part on the part of the client. And therapists, okay, do not tell the truth.
0: Ah, uh, ah, uh, I see. So that's why. So
1: they're not telling so, the truth.
0: So the, the therapists that are, are, are making a living, a good living off of not telling the truth, that's those are the people you have we have to reach if um we're really going to well the book anxiety.
1: is for both the book is for the the book is for therapists and clients for what to look for so i want uh-huh. i give I I, I I let i try to let clients know what to look for when they enter therapy they have to have a clear exit strategy they have to know what they want, and then therapists it's also written for therapists therapists need to be there for the patient, not for and, you know, for their own self-gratification, okay? So it's a, it's a message to both of those people to take responsibility, to develop a contract, okay, and do the work as efficiently and effectively as possible because the more effective and efficient you can be, the more ethical it is. Right, right. And
0: the more ethical, the more integrity, yeah. Yes, the more integrity, yeah. more.
1: Yes. Yeah. The more integrity. To the the treatment. That's right.
0: You
2: know. Yeah.
1: So that's that's my big push is to make therapy uh, much more uh, honest. Okay. Okay. Now therapists want to help. Okay, but uh, they they charge a hell. You know what they charge in New York City, and in Westport,
2: Uh,
1: uh, New York City. $300, $400, Uh, $300, $400, in Westport, you might get five or $600 for a session, and the, he listens to you or she listens to you that. And, and okay. aren't people
0: suspicious? But, but I guess that, like you said, um, they're going because they don't really want to change, although on or, a superficial level,
1: yes. Yeah, they, they go because they're hurting, okay? Uh-huh. And then you give yourself away. You give yourself away to the professionals who you think know more than you or can help you, okay? You give yourself away. You don't challenge the therapist. You don't ask the questions. You don't bring a, I tell people, bring a tape recorder. You'll have three or four sessions rather than one. You'll forget the session most of the time anyway. When you leave a session, you forget what happened there, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you brought a tape recorder, You'd be able to listen to the session in your home. Uh, You'd get like four sessions out of it. Okay, people don't do it. You're like a you're
0: like a coach for these. You're a coach. Yes, you? you're coaching patients how to, yes. how to be better patients. Yes, more yes, more intensive huh? yeah. to get more out more, of it. Yes, and, this, and,
2: this and get
1: more, be what be a, getting more,
0: getting more what they're uh, paying for. You get what you're paying like for.
2: And I understand like
1: that. that there's a there's yeah. a part of you that will resist change. It's just part of the natural process. But we right. have ways to help you overcome that and not be so scared of change. You're not going to lose your identity, okay? You'll still be who you are. You'll just modify some of the ways you think, some of the ways you feel, and some of the things that you do that will help you lead a more healthy, productive life, Okay? Okay, so be able to solve problems more effectively, okay? So that's if you want to learn how to do that, we have methods to help you do that. But you have to do right. your part. It's a collaborative encounter. Right. I do my part, you do your part, okay? I have a saying. Right. It's like a home, you ever hear of Home Depot?
2: Yeah. Home, yeah. Depot
1: has, home Depot has a saying, you can do it, we can help. I say that to them. You can do it, I can help you.
0: Right, okay. so we're changing, and I think this is what the Association for Spiritual and Psychotherapy is about, it's about changing the models of how we're here to help people.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Henry Grayson has been doing this, okay?
2: Okay. Yes.
1: Henry Grayson does all of these energy techniques. What I have a problem yeah, with Henry is that... he's the founder of
0: the ASC, the
2: Association for Spiritual Health. That's right, he
1: is, and he does these energy healing techniques. However, he doesn't focus on behavior change. He only focuses on emotional change. Now, you can change your emotion and still keep doing what you're doing, and that's I have a little issue with that. It's
0: wait, wait, behavior
1: it
2: that you have to... What, do you have
1: that? an issue with which part? He doesn't focus enough on behavior change. What? The, you have to change your behavior.
2: Is,
1: he you focuses focuss- on, on emotional emotions.
0: change. Well, if you change yeah. your emotions, don't your behavior change?
1: Not all the time. Not all the time.
0: So Not how do you time. change behavior? Because, so you're saying if your behavior doesn't change, it doesn't matter how much emotion, because you, you're still stuck in the same pattern is what you're saying
1: you're still stuck in the same pattern and you're affecting your you're affecting people okay in the same wow. if i'm angry if i have an anger problem if i if i act out my anger okay and i'm judgmental right and i'm angry at everybody now uh, i can use cognitive therapy to understand the nature of my where my anger comes from i can tap to reduce my emotional distress and that may help me not act out as much, right? Mm-hmm. Okay? But yeah. unless I stop acting out as much, okay, all of those internal changes are
0: not good enough. You actually have to but, change what you do. But won't the tapping change what you do because you won't be motivated by the sometimes
1: it Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, okay? So... So, I, I've, you know, I've worked with a lot of angry guys, you know. It's very hard to change, okay? It's very hard uh-huh. to change angry behavior. Now, if you want to be angry, okay, you can be angry. But when you start to take it out on other people, that's right. where relationships, you know, get screwed up.
0: Now, when so you how, get angry... So, so how do you change that? I mean... I think an anger is a chemical addiction because you're addicted to those chemicals of anger. And well, when no, I was addicted. For, well, you're not angry yeah, for. Well, you while. can change, you can change, body can change those your. Chemicals.
1: Well, you can change your addictive thoughts through tapping. And, I, and, I, 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 and I, uh, I work with Gary Craig about my addiction. I was addicted, okay? What I was addicted, addicted to, to donuts. What? What? I was addicted to donuts. Donuts. I had cravings okay. for donuts. Donuts okay. are not good for, you I had bypass surgery, right? Donuts right. are not good for bypass surgery, right? But I, was, okay. I would have urges, okay? And so I was at a conference, and there was a lecture. This guy, John Depot, did a lecture. He said, does anyone have a, a problem they want to work with? So I raised my hand, okay? And I said, I have, I'm addicted. I have an addiction. I'm addicted to donuts. So in the audience was Gary Craig, right? Right. So let me tell you how this. So he says, Gary, do you want to work with George? So he comes up. He says, sure. Hi, hi Gary. Hi, George. Uh, so I understand you're addicted. What kind of donor are you addicted to? I said, I'm a, uh, let me think about that. Uh, French crawler. So he says, uh, this is how it actually went. Uh, make believe I have a French crawler in my hand. How much do you want that French crawler? I said, Eight. We scale things, okay, before and after, right? Before right. the tapping and after the tapping. So I have an urge of about an eight. So I did a round of tapping. I knew how to do it, so I did it. Says, now how much do you want that how much do you want that donut? Uh, that French crow? I said, about a six. Then I did another, uh-huh. even though I still have a craving for donuts, I totally and completely love and accept myself. I tapped on my acupressure points. He said, How much do you want that donut now? I said, four. You know, he says, he says, what comes to mind? In a split second, Alan, I'm back at 10 or 11 years old with your father listening to Uh the radio or to a game, a ball game on the radio, eating bagels together, okay? Uh, That was feeding my addiction. Those feelings, those unconscious feelings, okay? Okay. But what, the, the uh, feeling
0: what, what, that was feed, wait. But the feeling that was feeding you was this nice, cozy, comfortable feeling that you were craving, right?
1: Yes, and also the sugar, the two
0: the, the sugar, but and that comfort. But, 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 of, the, but, what, that but, but the experience that you flashed on. What was what was the feeling of the experience that you flashed on? What do, how did you feel
1: it was, that? Oh, the feeling of closeness with my brother sharing a great experience, listening to the Knickerbockers on radio, having fun, eating bagels. You know, that was like a, a great experience that your, brother, your your
0: father and I would share all the time. It was a so wonderful feeling. Your eating the donuts would satisfy that craving for connection because you made that association. That's right. And I didn't know about it until he asked the question. That's but the other why thing about... Would you, why would you, but why would you want to give up eating donuts if it reminded you of that close feeling?
1: Well, I can get close feelings in different ways. I don't need to go back into my childhood for close feelings, okay? I can just think okay, about all the great times your father and I had, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I oh, can
0: I have see. close so,
2: feelings. <laughs> okay, but... Be-
0: because it was unconscious, but you right. were craving it. Unconscious, but when you started to make it conscious, that that awareness yes. uh, broke the addiction.
1: Yes, 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 yes. You know, one.
0: Okay, yeah, but I wasn't. I
1: wasn't. I wasn't aware of that memory even existing. That's the great part of this approach. Not only does it deal with the current symptom of anxiety and anger and shame and guilt, it opens up all of the past history, potentially, to what's feeding those
0: feelings now. Ah. Uh, and and when you make mentioned. those feelings conscious, they it's like light is shown on the darkness. Is that it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I okay. think that's major because people don't realize that it's these subconscious associations that are feeding their addictions, and when that's right, you make it conscious, right. then then you don't have to do the habit to well, get into those. Um, you can you, you can you can
1: find other ways of you can find other ways of getting those needs met.
0: More conscious ways,
1: more conscious, more adaptive, more adaptive ways.
0: Right. It may be the same thing for alcohol. You remember growing up yes. having a good time with your friends,
2: drinking alcohol, right. That's right.
0: and the yes. guy becomes an alcoholic, and it's, it's right. about, you know, something It's else.
1: about that re- reconnecting with, and he doesn't even know it. So, this is why right. it's good for addiction, it's good for pain, it's good for anxiety, depression, anger, shame, guilt, you know, and it not only alleviates the current symptom that you're feeling, but it opens up the possibility of deeper work.
0: The the deeper work is the release of these, these implicit memories. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think yeah. so so is your book conclude with well, that... How, did, how does the book conclude if you want to give away the ending?
1: Yeah, the the book concludes with uh, statements about love, okay? Uh, I start the book with a story that my mother told me that also uh, influenced the bullshit idea. My mother, when I was a little kid, your grandmother, would listen to stories on the radio, okay? And then she would relate those stories to me. So I'm a little kid at her feet doing all kinds of things, playing with toys or whatever, and she tells me this story. I'm about three or four years old because that's what I was, okay? She tells me a story of that a man is in love with this woman, right? His fiancee. And he says to her, I love you so much, darling, I would climb the highest mountain to be with you. I would swim the deepest ocean. I love you so much just to be with you. To which she says, So you'll be over tomorrow night to which he says, if it doesn't rain <laughs> That I got that even as a little kid, I got that you bullshit thought,
2: story.
0: You thought that was funny, even as a little kid.
1: Even as a little kid, I know that was a bullshit story, because people say all sorts of things about love. I love, right? And I would talk to the inmates, and I'd talk to my clients. What do you mean by love? And so I end I end with a story by uh, by a, 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 a homily by Father Cogiano in Massachusetts just recently, where he says... Love is the wishing well for another person, and it's a decision made many times during the day. You have to have the intention. You have to behave in a loving way. You just don't have to, you just don't say the words. It's not even a feeling. It's a feeling and behavior that wishes well for another human being. Right. that's what wishes well Well, it's It's not about possessing them it's about wishing them well wishing them well and whatever that means and i say and i so one of the last things in the book i say well when you as a therapist are sitting with your client your job is to wish them well and to the client your job
0: is your job is to to love them because obviously they haven't been
1: love them. them That's right. Your job is to love them, which is part of wishing them well, okay? And the client's job is to wish himself well, and if he has any leftover feeling for his therapist, he can send that message to the therapist too.
0: Wait, so this is, you, this is the, uh, a radical break from the psychoanalytic um, detached view total of the observer.
1: Total... Total radical shift from what I first was trained in. Uh huh.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Total different. So you made. You told me for you, me.
0: it's like it. The story is a journey from disconnection to connection.
1: Yeah, it's a journey. It's my a goodness. journey, and it it's a journey that I try to practice myself. I'm not my only goodness. successful, but but this is my journey,
0: and <laughs> I. Uh, I Is that the approach you take anyone who comes into your office? Because I I know you're almost retired, but you're still seeing people.
2: You are wishing them
0: well in whatever way you can with the best um, tools you have learned in the last 50 years. That's right.
1: I wish them well and try to get them to where they want to be as quickly with the most effective methods that I can have at my disposal so they leave. And,
0: and, And one question, though you ever feel conflicted saying, if this person gets well, then I'll be making less money a week? Yes. How do you deal with that?
1: Well, you just become aware of it and uh, deal with uh, some of the seven deadly greed sins. One of the seven deadly sins is greed, you know, and avarice and all of that. You just become aware of that, and I write about this, it's very. You have to be aware of it. So you, you. I discovered that if I have a waiting list, right? Yeah. I am more likely to encourage people to leave therapy.
0: I see. But the, the other. You point have to of be aware. It, I, the other point of view is the sort of trusting the universe, saying if I, I really help this person and they go out in the world, I feel. That that's the integrity that will send more. It's a sort of a trusting universe approach. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: That's that's the that's the other point of view. I look if I cure, I would like to cure people in one session, and I talk about that. Okay,
2: uh-huh.
1: I'm uh-huh. just not good enough to do that, but I would like to do that.
0: And maybe you'll be good. At, do you ever use Pono Pono Pono, the Hawaiian healing technique? I've got it on
1: my computer, but I haven't studied it.
0: Well, it's very simple. This guy was curing criminally insane people in Hawaii. You heard the story. And he would speak as if he was the criminal, and he would just say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. He would say that as a criminal to the people. And people... Somehow within the field of energy would change and shift and get better because of this yeah. energetic connection. This guy yeah. was doing for his people, they didn't even know what they were doing. He was doing it for it's pretty yeah. miraculous. But it's, it's again that field of wishing someone well. Wishing,
1: wishing well, there is a there, there seems to be a universal law that uh, a universal spiritual law. When you do something to someone, you do it to yourself. When you do something for someone, you do it for yourself.
0: Right. That seems to be a principle that works. If therapists would know that, of course, it takes a spiritually open minded therapist to say, you know, I would really, you know, if you can't treat people and let them go, then then you're, you're increasing the, the level of integrity within the profession itself. And
1: you, yes, it's not only you'll send these people out, okay, uh, faster and better, but you yourself are going to feel good about that. So be very selfish about it because it will make you feel good because we know no, it's, from the work in, the, in what makes people happy is when they serve others.
0: Right. You,
1: well, people don't know that until
0: you. they get over the, those seven laws of greed or those seven principles yes. of greed. They,
2: they don't yes. know that.
0: And, of course, that's the problem with most people. They don't know helping other people makes them feel better. They don't yes. realize that that's actually... I mean, I think therapists in schools should actually um, get that education.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, and doctors yeah. and therapists are going... To school, learning their skills to make people better,
2: They're right not
0: doing it to make themselves rich, I think that's a real essential part of education and these kind of spiritual principles, yeah, yeah, now
1: uh look, I've made mistakes of pushing people or encouraging people to leave therapy. I've made mistakes because mm-hmm. they weren't really ready, they were too scared to do that, and I relate. Right. Uh, one patient that I worked with uh, who was working with me for a while and I said to her uh, Alice uh, uh, why don't you get on with your life already? I mean you've been with me for so long I mean, uh, she, she would come in she would sit next to me and say, uh, I said Alice what the, what the hell are you doing? she would say uh, I just want to meditate with you George, okay so she'd hold my hand and meditate, right? I said Alice Is this what you want to pay me for? Is this what you want to... He says, yes. Don't push me out, okay? Because she was an attorney who couldn't really practice. She was too nervous to practice,
2: okay? So she got into
1: meditation and wanted to meditate with me. So, okay, I meditated with her, and eventually she left on her own, but she said, back off, George. I'll tell you when I'm ready. So she was good. Because I was pushing a little too much. Well, Um, maybe she...
0: uh... Benefited in ways that you couldn't um, see from your point yeah. of view.
1: Yeah, right. She was. And so she taught me something. So I need to uh-huh. encourage people, but I can't push too far. I can't push too much. I it's see. a delicate you encourage
0: people because still you're only seeing from there. And they, if they want that security, right. and maybe, and even though maybe she was getting better, she felt you know, she was gaining something from the... I mean, yeah, or she, not.
1: She felt but that way. She has so to honor... Yeah, You have to honor them, too. I mean, it's not only my point of view, it's their
0: point of view. Right. No, I think that's yeah. really important. I think... So, taking all of this, taking this whole career and, you know, all the evolution that you've been through and the patience, rights, and respecting people and then loving people and then the tapping... Where are you now?
2: <laughs> um,
1: I'm just uh, trying to follow my own spirit. Whatever I, I I try to convey to patients, I try to convey to myself, okay? I'm trying to live a, uh, a spiritual life, okay? Uh, uh, what, you know, what does that to, mean, a spiritual life, to you? It means I, I, I want to be present with people. I want to listen to them. I want to encourage. I want to not be judgmental, Okay. Uh, which I'm generally not, okay? Um, Right. And I once asked Ram about it because my mind still is judgmental on certain issues. You know, I become, in my mind, I'm not generally judgmental about, in my relationships with people outside the family. I am judgmental with people in my family. It's hard for me to overcome that. But I asked Ram about that. I said, Ram I have a problem. In my mind, I'm judgmental. And he said... That's because you're still identified with your mind, George, identified with your loving heart. And just keep repeating uh-huh. to yourself, I am loving awareness. I am loving awareness. Whenever you get into that state where you think, even in your mind, even though behaviorally you're not putting people down and judging them, if you go that, to that place in your mind, just keep repeating, I am loving awareness. I am loving
0: awareness. See,
1: De- uh, Have
0: you done this? It, has it just
1: helped yeah. you? I think it's helped me because I'm, uh, you know, my family's, I'm much, I used to be really an angry person, you know, at home. Okay? Not uh-huh. outside the home. But I used to get right. angry at Gene and the kids, and I just pretty much don't do that much anymore. Uh-huh. Occasionally I get, I get trapped, and then I have to apologize, which I do. I, I take my moral inventory. Another thing, I love AA because. Uh, you have to take a moral inventory. All the people what that you have hurt. What does it mean? A moral inventory, AA, is great. They said, make a list of all the people in your life that you've ever hurt. Okay? Uh-huh. And, and apologize yeah. to them. So I did that to all my friends and my family. You, you, you apologize in person, not in your mind. If they're around, I apologize in person. I wrote them letters. I said, if there's anything that I ever did that offended you... I want you to let me know what it was, and I am sorry, okay? So I apologize Mm -hmm. to all my friends. I apologize to my own family for the things I did and didn't do, okay? Uh And I keep on doing that once or so, once a week, maybe once, sometimes twice a week. I think about what have I ever done or not done acts of omission
0: that were
1: hurtful to people.
0: And then what does that that do for you when you you do that? When you feel like
1: that. It 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 just relieves me it's it it, mm-hmm. it it gives me forgiveness in my heart. Uh-huh. You can, you I can forgive, forgive myself. myself you can live with yourself easier. Yeah. Because I don't like that I did that. It hurts me uh-huh. that I did that. So right. uh, I w I wanna forgive. So this is forgiveness is healing. You know, so right. uh you know, and that's what so, I got out of AA, you know,
2: uh you know, you,
1: you, you may, not only do you, you make an apology, because you can make an apology and do, do the same thing over and over again. You, you, if you really right. mean what you say, you make a commitment not to do that again. You right. commit to change. That's where the commitment to change is done. You just don't go to church, confess, he gives you ten Hail Marys, and you go out and do it again.
2: Right? Right. No, you
1: have exactly. to commit to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we have to... Ch-
2: so do you
0: see, though, uh, psychotherapy? I mean, you've been in this field for a long time, and uh, do you see the whole field shifting? Is it becoming more spiritually based? Yes, it is. Is that true?
1: It is. There are journals. More journals are relating to this issue. More conferences are relating to this issue. Yes. Becoming more holistic, right,
0: or spiritual? I wrote a sort of manifesto for AS the Association of Spirituality and Psychotherapy, saying that psychology has only gotten us so far. There's things like near-death experience, out-of-body experiences, that transcend the psychological paradigm, and, mm-hmm. and they can't be looked at in terms of psychology. Because if you do, these people are crazy. But if you see there's a bigger picture, then maybe there's something else happening. Do you, do you go along with that, idea? Whatever you believe
1: to be true, this is your father's book, gave it to me many years ago. You know him, John Lilly, right? Whatever you believe to be true is true or you'll make it become true. Okay? You have to transcend the limits of your own thinking, okay? Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's what I think spirituality does, okay? uh, Because in the long run, uh, from the spiritual point of view, there's just one of us.
0: It's just one here, one person here. Yeah,
1: it's just one person. Yes, yeah. but to really experience that is difficult.
0: Right. To live that. No, it is. So, so, do you talk about that in your book as well? Yes. So, how, how can I know it's not out exactly right now? But how how can people get the book, and, and what's what's name of it, and
1: and who's the publisher? So, uh, as I said, I think it's being published by Friesen Press. It's called "Bullshit in Psychotherapy." I should, I should, uh, I, I say it's a professional autobiography. I should say it's a professional journey in search of truth, right? From an right. ego to a soul-driven society, because bullshit occurs in every aspect of our society. In fact, what I want other people to do, or what I'd love other people to do is take a look at their job or profession and and come clean about it. Uh-huh. I like would love that. If they're a
0: teacher or a doctor, you
1: know... A doctor, a clock teacher, clock. A, me- a mechanic, uh,
0: a uh, anybody,
1: anybody, we all know that in the fields, there's a lot of bullshit going on. Yeah. We don't tell the truth. Now... Yeah, if you, and the, 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 the title came from the book on bullshit by uh, Professor Frankfurt, a uh, professor emeritus at Princeton University. He wrote a book on, on bullshit, he says. Mm-hmm. So that's where I got the idea that I could say it too, okay? Since a right. you know, professor, Princeton professor, can write a book called On Bullshit, I could put that in my title too. And basically, he said, bullshit is not lying. That's the thing, bullshit is not lying. Bullshit is spinning the truth in a Mm self-serving way. It's not lying. Well, it
0: ends up being the sort of same thing as a lie,
2: doesn't it? Excuse Mm -hmm.
0: me? Say that again. i said, doesn't it end up sort of being a lie? Because it's not the truth. You're not
1: saying the truth. Well, it's... Lying is when you... Say something that you yourself know is not true. Okay?
2: Uh-huh. Right. Bullshit
1: is a little spin off that that has a sort of a purpose to has a little bit of truth. It's not the whole truth. It's sort of getting over on people in some way. It's slippery. Bullshit is slippery. Okay?
2: Right.
1: You know it when you give it, and you know it when you feel it in your system. You know, there's something off about it. That's what bullshit
2: is,
1: (laughs) and we all do it, and we all feel it,
2: and we all
0: have those detectors in our side. Yeah, sure. Yeah, even the people that are throwing it at us.
1: (laughs) Sure. Yeah, (laughs) and we throw it at others too.
0: You have to be careful. Yes, I guess we do. You should should give a course on this, maybe. You know? Well, I would love that. I would love that. Well, maybe you could do a program for the Association ASC ASP
2: about that.
1: Well, I would love to. I would do a program. Yeah, I would love to give a, a, a talk on these issues to uh, confront my colleagues uh, about the work that they're doing. Yes.
0: Well, I'll talk to the president of the ASP, and maybe we could do something like that. Okay. All right. <laughs> maybe when the okay. book comes out, maybe when it's published yeah.
1: or something. Yeah, I'll let you know. I'll let you, I'll keep you posted on when it's coming out. It should be on Amazon and all those other places, too. They told me, at least, it should be. So, I'm sure it will be.
0: No, I mean, thank you for sharing the story, because, you know, I've known you a long time, of course, but I have never mm-hmm. heard the the whole story of, well, of your evolution.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, it was, yeah, and I feel it has been, uh, from where I started as that little, dumb little kid in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, <laughs> to some uh, person at this age who sometimes feels I don't know anything still, uh,
2: oh. and
1: yet there's another part of me that says I'm I'm totally different than that kid, but in some ways
0: I'm that same kid, you know, in some it, ways. It, it's it, amazing, isn't it, that that, yeah. is, that, that is true. Yeah.
2: That yeah.
0: You can't yeah. be that little kid and this person with all this. Years of experience. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. Well, so, so I enjoyed. hope you enjoy it. I hope I, you enjoy I, the book. I enjoy listening to you and and hearing your experience because you know, I mean, I just had flashes of some of those moments. I mean, but now you know, I've I've gotten deeper into those, uh, understanding mm-hmm. what you were going through, I and mean, the you know, and, and it hasn't been easy for you.
1: Oh well, it's been a, some of it has been a challenge uh, and scary, okay. And uh, the shifts, uh, but you know, there's a part of me that says I'm really, I'm really glad that I've been able to learn new things, and I'm not stuck in one model, okay, right. that I was stuck in. I, because a lot, as the researchers say, you get stuck in one way of doing things. And your and your work becomes stagnant.
2: Right. You
1: have to always challenge yourself with new new ways of thinking and doing things. And I've been right. for some reason, I don't know where I got it from, uh, but uh I have that part of me and I'm really happy about it.
0: No, that's great. I think that's important. I think that's why are mm-hmm. you're still working, aren't
1: you? Yeah, I'm working two and a half days a week,
0: yeah. And you still enjoy, it. I mean you enjoy teaching. I still enjoy it. I yeah. I love it. I love my work. I know. It's great. And you're helping
2: people, which is even well, better. I hope so. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Anyway, right. I hope
0: to see you soon. Uh, I great, hope all. You know.
1: so. Well, you're always welcome up here, Alan, you know, because, you know, whether or not I can ever get into the city you know, because of Jean's health issues, et cetera. Right. But, uh, you know, because I have to be around for her a lot, you know.
0: Right.
1: And uh, right. so, but, well, I, you know, I if I can, if, if I do get into the city, I, you know, we'll certainly meet up for lunch with you and your brothers and just me or you, and we'll just move thanks right.
0: Well, thanks. I'll tell people how to find you. What's your website?
1: My website is... Uh, DrGeorgeSteinfeld.com
0: DrGeorgeSteinfeld.com. That was the Dr. same
2: Steinfeld. way
0: I do, Steinfeld yeah. All right DrGeorge, thank, thank you, George It's been great Okay,
1: Alan, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to express my bullshit to you,
2: okay? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I thought it was, it was better than that. No, I, I I enjoyed it, I have to say, because it must me okay. living some of my past and uh, understanding yeah. you a little more. So, um, okay, I will talk to you soon. I'm going to sign okay. off here. take care.
1: Thanks. Thanks a lot.
0: Say hi to Gene and
2: everyone will else.
0: Will do. And to David. Will and, um, do. And, um, I'll, talk okay. to, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Okay, kid. Bye-bye. That, that is uh, Dr. George Steinfeld's... Gave us a great overview of his 50 years of practice and therapy and his transformation and his, um, you know, coming to a deeper level of understanding what it is that we're here to do for each other. I thought that was great. So thank you for listening. I'm Alan Steinfeld, and this is New Realities. And if you want to reach me, you can email me at realities at earthlink.net. Or uh, check my website, newrealities.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks, PBS. Thanks, everybody out there. And um, talk to you next week. Good night.